Heat waves, floods, more violent storms and rising sea level. These are just some of the predictions about what could be expected if nothing is done to slow the impact of climate change. In just a few weeks, world leaders, ministers, officials and observers from 196 countries will converge on Paris to try to nail down the first global deal to reduce climate damaging emissions. This RNZ Insight program investigates whether it's too late. 2014 will go down as the warmest year around the globe in recorded history. NBC's Anton. 2013 was Australia's hottest year on record, and now scientists have put a finger on a common cause. Five separate studies have concluded that... We've known for a while now the Earth is warming. These three separate reports, though, show just how fast it's happening. The planet is getting warmer, and the science of climate change is all but settled. There also appears to be little debate now over the fact that the blame for global warming can be laid at the feet of human activity. I'm Chris Bramwell, and I'm travelling to Paris to cover the pivotal United Nations climate change talks being held there. In this insight, I'll look at why this meeting is so crucial, what's at stake, and what got the world to this position. Climate change is a very important issue for us. It's not an economic issue anymore. It's a matter of life and death. And uh, because of that, it's a very serious issue that commands serious uh, consideration. The Prime Minister of the Cook Islands, Henry Puna, along with other Pacific leaders, argues his country is already feeling the effects of climate change. In its latest report, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change projected the planet could warm by between 3.7 and 4.8 degrees by the end of the century if no action is taken to mitigate climate change. Countries agreed at the Copenhagen Climate Change Conference in 2009 to limit that warming to 2 degrees. So, what would the world look like if it was 2 degrees warmer than it is now? Victoria University's Professor of Climate Change, Dave Frame, says different parts of the world will warm at different rates, with large land masses warming faster than islands. What you'd probably have is more extreme events, more events uh, that, are, that would be currently considered extreme. So temperatures would go up, um, precipitation, so rainfall, uh, the hydrological cycle kind of intensifies. So the tropics are expected to get wetter. The subtropics, which are dry anyway, are expected to get drier, so you might get desertification. And in the, in the sort of storm track areas, it may, get, it may get rougher. What about if the climate warms by four degrees? Is that something that humans could actually survive? Well, I'm sure some would. I mean, there's, there's, a lot of, um, there's a lot of different climates on Earth. It's not like we've evolved into one climate. You know, people live in a massive range of, of different, different areas, and actually technology helps us live in, in new places. So the, the, um, the southern states of America have had a... Have a places like Atlanta have had a boom in the post-war era on the back of air conditioning, and the same is true in um, the Gulf region and lots of places. So... It's hard to it's hard to say exactly, but I think a lot of natural systems would be would be really stressed at four degrees. Andy Reisinger was a coordinating lead author for the fifth assessment report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and is the deputy director of the New Zealand Agricultural Greenhouse Gas Research Centre. He says one of the critical elements of climate change is sea level rise, and if the world warms by four degrees, then sea level rise of at least half a metre could be expected. But he warns it could be more than one metre by the end of the century. You're looking with fairly high confidence at longer-term sea level rise of several metres, even if the world eventually then gets its act together. 
And that has massive implications because you're really redrawing global coastlines. Mm -hmm. And many of the most densely populated areas, especially in the developing world, are near river mouths and coastlines. And so the challenges that that poses are fundamental, including in New Zealand. I mean, most of our population is very much located near the coast. Lots of very high value infrastructure investment, mm -hmm. often aging infrastructure. And as you go from sea level rise that might be limited to 30 centimetres or half a metre in a very ambitious scenario where, re where you reduce global greenhouse gas emissions, if they continue to rise and looking at a metre and continuing to go up, that really is a major challenge for New Zealand's coastal future. So with the world possibly facing enormous physical change, what might happen at the Paris conference to make a difference? Nearly 200 members of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change will take part in the talks. The gathering is known as COP21, meaning it's the 21st meeting of the Conference of Parties to the Convention. Hello, I'm Severin Suzuki speaking for ECHO, the Environmental Children's Organization. We're a group of 12 and 13 year olds trying to make a difference. We've raised all the money to come here ourselves, to come 5,000 miles to tell you adults you must change your ways. In 1992, 12-year-old no Severn Suzuki took the stage at the Earth Summit in Rio de Janeiro and asked world leaders at the meeting to take immediate action to stop polluting the planet. The video of her speech went viral, becoming known as the girl who silenced the world for six minutes. I am here to spe speak on behalf of the starving children around the world whose cries go unheard. I am here to speak for the countless animals. At the historic conference, 172 countries agreed to put in place the framework within which all the UN states still work together to set limits on greenhouse gas emissions. In 1997, the Kyoto Protocol was signed, which committed a group of countries, mostly the so-called developed ones, to reduce their emissions. The first commitment period of the protocol was between 2008 and 2012, but despite the agreement, global emissions have continued to rise. Big emitters like the United States, China and India were not part of the protocol, and Canada withdrew later, leaving it severely weakened. In 2007, at a meeting in Bali, convention countries agreed to work towards a new agreement to start after the Kyoto Protocol ran out, and at that stage, Many groups started to point towards the 2009 meeting in the Danish capital Copenhagen as the one where the first truly global deal would be nailed down. But it wasn't to be. After two weeks of climate change talks in Copenhagen, countries have emerged without a binding treaty. Well, in fact, no deal at all. And delegates, though, did take note of a new Copenhagen Accord, agreed by the world's largest emitters, some say the outcomes are tragedy. New Zealand's climate change minister, Tim Grosser, says the negotiations are now more focused than they were in Copenhagen, mostly because officials and ministers will not be trying to achieve the impossible, which he says was certainly the case in 2009. What we're aiming for is, I don't know what you call it, a framework agreement. It's a word that we New Zealand negotiators use with very important details, actually very important to New Zealand, to be done after Paris. But the essential framework of a comprehensive agreement. So that's, first of all, it's doable. Second, we've got much broader political support than we had in Copenhagen. Copenhagen, you had European Union fully on board, but frankly, the developing countries were MIA, missing in action. 
Now you've got the, by far the most important of them, China, actually on board, properly on board. I am the last person in the world to be cynical about what China is doing in climate change. Fully understand they're doing it for a mix of reasons, but so what? By the head of the OECD's Environment Directorate and former New Zealand Environment Minister Simon Upton says Copenhagen was not a complete failure. Well, it's regarded as a, as, as a failure in terms of raised expectations about a particular type of conversation that didn't happen. But it started the process that's brought us to here. I think it would have been utterly naive to believe that in the short time prior to Copenhagen you could have put that sort of uh, deal together. But most importantly for me... It was Copenhagen that actually said two degrees is the limit for global warming that we, we want to try to stay within. That was an incredibly powerful thing. It is the two degrees goal that has actually energised everything. Without that, we had nothing. Adrian Macy was New Zealand's climate change ambassador at Copenhagen and says just about everything went wrong but he agrees that in the years since, the talks have got back on track. What we've ended up with now, uh, as a result of getting in the, back in the Durban conference, everything happens at these end-of-year conferences. The Durban conference in 2011, and that's where I was chairing the Kyoto Protocol, had three components, had the Kyoto Protocol and the other negotiation under the convention, and the third very important component was the mandate for this agreement that we will probably reach in Paris now. And this is one that's going to be more inclusive, more robust, and not needing, hopefully not needing to be renegotiated every, every few years. If agreed, the Paris deal would come into effect in 2020 and run until 2030. In the lead-up to Paris, countries have been submitting their pledges to reduce emissions. New Zealand's promise to reduce its emissions to 30% below what they were in 2005 by the end of that commitment period. In UN terminology, the pledges are called Intended Nationally Determined Contributions, or INDCs, one of the zillion acronyms that plague climate change talks. Most countries have put in their INDCs, which the UN estimates will slow warming to 2.7 degrees above current levels by the end of the century. That figure is still above the two-degree target set in Copenhagen. The climate scientist Andy Reisinger says while he's optimistic that a deal can be done, he's not feeling so chipper about whether it will be tough enough. I'm not very optimistic that the world is in a good position to actually meet on the target that the world and governments around the world have set for themselves, which is to limit warming to two degrees. I'm not very hopeful that we still have enough time to actually get there. The pledges that we have seen from countries around the world so far simply aren't in the ballpark. And from all that we know, it's much easier to get from 4 degrees down to 2.7 degrees of warming than it is to get from 2.7 to 2 degrees of warming. Simon Upton acknowledges that nations are lagging behind, but expects the pledges that have been submitted will need to be reviewed and sharpened over time. There's no country uh, that's really on track. Some are, some are uh, doing better uh, than others. But we've just actually released a report looking at this and saying, well, if you look at the recent emissions intensity reductions by economy, how many of those would get you to where we need to get to? Answer, none. They will have to be more or less more aggressive. And so country by country, we've gone through and identified that. We know that everyone is going to have to reduce their emissions intensity at rates that they have never done before. Is that possible? It seems a monumental task. Well, as I say, uh, we're now sitting on 
uh, technical possibilities that were not there, or they, or they weren't economically viable a few years ago. So I, I think the answer is yes. Um, it's going to be a huge stretch, and it will take much more than has been put on the table to date, but I think there are reasons to be optimistic if countries are prepared to treat their INDCs as a minimum which has to be added to, and not leaving it too long either. Climate change professor Dave Frame believes expectations should be tempered by what a deal at the United Nations can actually achieve. It doesn't have any teeth in the sense that the UN isn't a law-making body, it doesn't pass laws, it can sanction behaviour by you know, essentially a round of applause or by telling people off, but it's, it's actually easy. I think a lot of activists make are far too naive about what sort of entity it is. It's actually just a, it's a group of member states. That, that's, that's what it is. So I think it can play some really important roles in providing a central repository of information in terms of facilitation, in terms of information sharing and agreeing things like these aspirational goals about broadly where we, we want to go. But it can't, it can't actually drive outcomes. While the negotiations continue, Many businesses are already trying to do their bit. This, this is the squirrel monkeys. A rather unlikely business that's decided to deal with its greenhouse gas emissions is the Wellington Zoo. Its chief executive, Karen Fifield, says the zoo decided to go carbon neutral and got certified and audited, but it's tackling its emissions that's the tricky bit. So it's all very well to do, you know, um, offsets and all the rest of it, but really what Carbon Zero is wanting is for people to drop those emissions. So you get, we've done a whole lot of work to do that, and now the rubber hits the road because we have to think then about big projects that are going to drive even further emission reduction. So we're thinking, like, we need to go solar. You know, that'll be our next big project, so getting solar panels on the front building and continuing to roll those out across the, across the zoo, maybe putting some wind turbines in. We're still thinking about that. So really big projects like that that are really going to drive a lot of change. So what stage is the international climate change deal at right now? The most recent meeting of officials was just last month in the German city of Bonn, where negotiators poured over the text of the agreement making changes and adding more clauses in an attempt to balance the deal. At the end of the meeting, the head of the Climate Change Convention, Cristiano Fugueres, told the meeting that while the text wasn't perfect, it was more manageable. The bad news is that this is no longer a concise text. We now have uh, 25 plus 30, so 55 pages. And this is not as clear as it was at the beginning. It is arguably clear to those who have inserted text and who have been working with this text for the whole week. But I would argue it's probably not very clear to anybody walking down the street. So I think that is... Coastal erosion is just one of the effects likely to hit New Zealand. And here at Wellington's Island Bay, sea walls were broken away a few years ago by surging seas. Pacific Island nations are facing similar problems, but with less of an ability to cope and rebuild. This concept of loss and damage is one of a number of issues to be ironed out in Paris. The idea is to work out how to deal with the damage some nations might suffer as a result of climate change that they cannot work to prevent. 
A lot is likely to be heard from the Association of Small Island States and the least developed countries who say they want to be compensated by richer, more industrialised states who they argue polluted the atmosphere. The larger economies, though, will be pushing other mechanisms, such as putting money into the Green Climate Fund, which was set up at the Cancun meeting in 2010. The money pledged by the richer countries goes into helping poorer countries adapt and counter climate change. Another big debate in Paris will be around how much of the agreement should be legally binding. Many states, non-government organisations and environment groups want the whole agreement to be binding, holding states to their pledges to reduce greenhouse gases, as they argue the original plan envisaged. But New Zealand has suggested that only parts of the agreement be binding. This has been labelled the New Zealand proposal and has been talked up by the US as the right way to clinch a global deal. New Zealand's former climate change ambassador, Adrian Macy, explains how it would work. So you'll have, as I see it, a core legal agreement, legally binding agreement. Sitting alongside that agreement will be these awfully worded INDCs, which is essentially contributions or commitments. They will be in themselves not legally binding, but I think that to be a party to the agreement, you will have to have put in one of these commitments, and they will be subject to regular review, uh, full transparency, and that's where the discipline will come from, rather than the Kyoto approach, which was legally binding with sanctions. Effectively, though, these sanctions were not effective, and uh, Canada walks away, suffers no sanctions, and, and ironically for Kyoto, the only way that sanctions would take effect is if you signed up to a succeeding commitment period, so all you had to do was walk away. Tim Grosser, who put the New Zealand proposal on the table, argues it's now accepted as the best approach. The European Union basically developed the Kyoto Protocol just for developed countries. And actually, I commend them for their leadership, but it locked in place a model that developing countries and the United States were never going to come on board. So this proposal, basically put together by New Zealand over the last few years, focused on trying to achieve an agreement that could attract comprehensive coverage. And you were never going to get the United States, because while the administration is fully supportive of effective climate change policy, there's still a massive problem in the US Congress with climate change. There's still people in the United States Congress that think this is some kind of UN conspiracy to rob the United States of its sovereignty. So to get the United States involved and to get China involved, it required a non-threatening compliance mechanism. But Greenpeace International says the New Zealand proposal is not constructive. Speaking to me by Skype from Berlin, the organisation's Head of International Climate Politics, Martin Kaiser, says the idea aims too low too soon. So the proposal of New Zealand is basically against the decision which had been made in the past. So it's unacceptable to leave Paris with a non-legally binding uh, deal. The main question on that is uh, which parts of the agreement will be uh, legally binding and which aren't. But if countries leave Paris and claim that their national climate targets won't be internationally reviewed and are not internationally part of the legally binding package, I don't know whether they really take climate change uh, measures seriously.
The Green Party co-leader James Shaw says if the agreement that comes out of Paris is not as strong as it could be, it would be ideal if it included a sort of ratcheting up mechanism. So you can kind of get the mechanism in place now uh, and then build in a mechanism that, so that over time you can actually turn the screws a wee bit more and get it down to under two degrees. And do you think it has to be legally binding? Uh, yes, I do. I do. And one of the things that I'm really worried about is the possibility that it will be legally binding on paper, but there will be no kind of enforcement mechanisms. Like the Kyoto Protocol? Yeah, like the Kyoto Protocol, like, uh, frankly, a number of our trade agreements, uh, which contain a lot of fine words about environmental standards, but don't have any binding and enforceable uh, mechanisms inside them. Today I am proud that we can announce a historic agreement. I commend President Xi, his team, and the Chinese government for the commitment they are making to slow, peak, and then reverse the course of China's carbon emissions. Today I can also announce that the United States has set a new goal of reducing our net greenhouse gas emissions by 26 to 28 percent below 2005 levels by the year 2025. Late last year, the world's two largest economies and also biggest polluters struck a landmark deal heralded by many as a game-changer and far more significant than anything achieved by the UN. Victoria University's Dave Frame says there's no doubt that even inside the United Nations process, it's the US and China that currently hold the cards. I think the US and China have the predominant hands right now, but I think India and countries that sort of accumulate around India in these negotiations will be a really important determinant of whether or not we get anywhere near two degrees because because those countries will need to participate in order to, to keep under two degrees. But at the moment, they're showing very few signs of, of wanting to, to play, at least within this UN sort of this, uh, this INDC sort of framing. It may be the case that bilateral deals, multilateral deals sort of offline from the UN may, um, may be a more fruitful avenue for their participation. But Tim Grosser says regional deals and a UN deal should not be seen as alternatives. I think the UN system itself is central to it because we have to have broad-based participation. This is completely different to my other area of involvement in international affairs, which is international trade, where actually you don't need to have other countries. You can just do it with a few small countries getting together liberalised trade and get benefits from it. But we all understand climate change is completely different. You've got to get 80% or more of those emissions into this new agreement, otherwise we're wasting our time. So I think in that sense, the broad UN framework is the right framework. But it's not like that's the only show in town. So what happens if the talks collapse in Paris? Will it mean the end of the UN as the platform for tackling climate change? Simon Upton says no. It's just you haven't got another uh, institutional entity that you can go to. Uh, you're going to have to uh, keep talking uh, within this framework. But I don't think these talks will fail. So how will New Zealand meet its target? The country has an unusual emissions profile, as almost half of its greenhouse gas emissions come from agriculture. It's proved difficult for reductions to be made to those emissions, which is why Tim Grosser backs New Zealand's target. First of all, we will not achieve even that without access to carbon markets. That is the hard reality. So the original logic of the attacking climate change internationally was because it's a global problem, actually it doesn't matter 
where the reductions in emissions occur. It's the only the collective thing that matters. That's why they set up a system of carbon trading. Now, in the third commitment period, 2020 to 2030, I think it's highly likely, nearly certain, that New Zealand will need to buy its way out of this problem. Then that leaves the issue about, well, what are we going to do with our gross emissions? Now, it still remains very, very difficult for New Zealand. But I personally am of the view that, while I can't put a date on this, that there is every reason to believe that we will see substantial change in a longer-term framework because 70% of New Zealand emissions come from transport and agriculture. Mm. And on transport, you must have seen that Simon Bridges, who, you know, it's not entirely an accident that he's the Associate Minister of Climate Change. Simon has been driving this move, strongly supported by big players in New Zealand and the private sector, to look at the uptake of electric vehicles. So here we are in the Nissan Leaf. It's a nice environmental name. Yeah. And Julian Gent is going to take me for a little spin. There's no gears in the electric vehicles. It's basically just reverse neutral or drive. Yeah, they don't require gears. Okay, combustion engine. That's it, it's on. It's on. It's so quiet. The transport sector is New Zealand's fastest growing source of greenhouse gas emissions and the government has been talking up the benefits of electric vehicles but the costs of the cars are still prohibitive and there's not yet much of a second-hand market. The Executive Director of the Sustainable Business Council, Penny Nelson, says the private sector can do some of the work towards moving to electric vehicles but the government is also a large purchaser of vehicle fleets, so there's room for the government to lead in that area. She says there's a sense in the business community that it's now the government that's starting to drag its feet on climate change action. They want to see ambitious global targets um, and New Zealand positioned to be a strong contributor to meet those and regardless of what happens in Paris, um, we'll be making a lot happen when we get back home. So the sense in the business community then is that they want stronger targets than what New Zealand's taking to the table? What I'm hearing very clearly from the business community is that they have got strong ambitions for New Zealand and they think we can do more and if business works with government we can do that. Climate scientists on the whole agree that the planet has got to get to zero net emissions to properly slow global warming. That means moving to a low carbon future and that whatever gases are emitted are offset in some way, be it by planting trees or some other technologies that are yet to emerge. And the need to tackle carbon emissions is critical. As scientist Andy Reisinger explains, of the greenhouse gases, it's carbon dioxide that lasts a long time in the atmosphere. Almost half of the carbon dioxide that we emit today will still be in the atmosphere or contributing to warming 100 years from now. Even, even thousands of years from today, our emissions today will still contribute some 10-20% of today's value to warming, which is why reductions of carbon dioxide are urgent because it's not just a near-term issue. We are creating a legacy for the climate for hundreds and hundreds of years to come. The climate change talks kick off in Paris on November the 30th with a Leaders' Day. Barack Obama, David Cameron, Xi Jinping and, yes, John Key will be there. The leaders and heads of state are expected to set the groundwork in place and start the momentum for what will be a long fortnight of haggling, 
wrangling and debate. I'm Chris Bramwell and that's Insight for this week. If you have any thoughts, it would be great to hear from you. You can contact us on email at insight at radioNZ.co.nz or our Twitter handle is rnz underscore insight. I wrote and presented that programme and was produced by Philippa Tolley with technical production by Steve Burridge.